Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Geekscapist, we've got a brand new Geekscape episode coming up. My guest is Mark Zickery. He is a writer, producer, and director. He's got a new, brand new project called Space Command, which raised... What was it? Seventy-five thousand dollars on on Kickstarter in like three days. Yeah, and we just hit one hundred and fifty thousand. And they just hit one hundred and fifty thousand. That's pretty awesome. We're going to be telling you guys about that series, uh, as well as some of his work on shows that you love, like Next Generation, um, his book series Magic Time, and check this out. The guy wrote the Twilight Zone Companion when he was twenty-two years old. Uh, he wrote on the Littles, uh, Captain Power, Black Star, Animorphs, the real Ghostbusters. Mantis, you guys love Mantis because I'm always talking about Mantis. The dude in a wheelchair who turns into a superhero with a power suit, awesome. He's got tons of stories of Hollywood and writing and all in science fiction, and he's coming up on this episode of Geekscape. Thanks for coming on Geekscape. Thanks for making the drive all the way from West Hollywood to be here. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd like to think that we're pretty central here. I mean, yeah, yeah. you got to yeah. you got to you got to put up with uh, the dogs barking every now and then when you when you show up. Like, I, I've I've learned after five years of doing this to put the dogs in crates when somebody walks in because <laughs> I've had guest after guest. Uh, I guess they're kind of. Um, they're tolerating the dogs, you know? I can't just assume that everyone is as, as crazy about dogs as I am. No, I love dogs. Dogs make every day better. It, it's just something that you're like, you know what? Uh, life is worth sharing with someone. And since most people who are cognizant on a human level can't tolerate me, <laughs> dogs is what I'm stuck with. Yeah. You know, They're like, you know what? We'll tolerate you because you f- feed us and clean up after us. Yes. But, a, but a human, I mean, it's hard to get my wife to hang around. It's harder. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Mark, you've got a pretty amazing career. And we will get into Space Command, which is this current project that you're working on. Again, guys, $75,000 in three days on Kickstarter for this brand new sci-fi series of films that they're putting together. So when I said series in the intro, I wasn't talking about a TV show, a web series. Maybe it can live in those worlds, but you guys thought these would be 
films, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, basically, it's uh, you know, I, I came up in TV. I've sold over a hundred scripts. I have hundreds of hours of produced credits. I've written for all the major studios and networks. But um, back in uh, 2007, 2008, I made my own Star Trek episode without a studio or a network, starring George Takei. Did it entirely on the internet. And uh, we were nominated for the Hugo and the Nebula, and that was sort of a, a practice run because I, I, the moment I realized that uh, you could deliver a material to an audience uh, via the internet, I realized, oh, well, we don't really need studios and networks anymore, not really. And uh, so, I th and then I started hearing about Kickstarter, and I thought, okay, let's try this alternative. And uh, I'd never raised money before, but I, I treated it seriously and taught myself how to do this and assembled a team. And as you say, we had planned uh, two months to raise seventy-five thousand. We hit that in just over three days, and now we're not even. I mean, we still have over a month to go, and we've just hit one hundred and fifty thousand. So uh, we'll see how far we can get. But so far, so good. So th th that just means that the uh, women in the script that would have been human, you guys can now afford paint to make them alien babes. <laughs> like, well, like wait, no, it's funny how much of that goes towards the alien babe budget? Well, it's a fair amount. <laughs> uh, the, uh, it's fascinating because the only reason this is possible is because I have incredibly talented friends. And one of my friends is a fellow named Ian McCaig. Ian designed Darth Maul and Queen Amidala, and he was the lead character designer on the last three Star Wars films. He did John Carter, he did The Avengers, he designed the Hulk, and, and those weird creatures on the sky sleds in The Avengers. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Ian and I are buddies, he's my artist on Magic Time. And we started talking about, okay, and I've just brought him aboard as a, as a lead character designer and creature designer on this. And, uh, but he's talking about that, that very same thing that you were mentioning, which is, you know, doing uh, alien designs and android designs and all sorts of stuff that you can do in you know with CG and post, but on living actors on. So it's not replacing the actors. It's like it's, an augmentation. Yes, exactly. And but he's, we're also designing another alien that's completely non-human, and that will be that'll be CG and probably augmented by some practicals. Yeah. So so Space Command, you are in this. Um, I actually have a press release. I think this <laughs> press release, like I, I I can tell you, you know, um, you've got some some pretty. Are your friends in this? Who, who's involved in yes. this uh, in this space command with you? A lot of my friends. So um, the first thing, what, what really brought this about, was that I was on coast to coast. Uh, a few I'm years still ago. trying to get your audio right. Hold I'm on, Geekscapist. Hold Here on. We go. For some out. reason, I'm not loving this mic. Okay. Like, you know, let me see. There we go. I just wanted to point it at your mouth. Yeah, no, and it's it not. It's, it's freaking idea. me out. No, we. All right, there we go. We there we go. My feet, but you know, yeah. my mouth is better. You know. So okay, great. And, uh, but so um, I was on Coast to Coast a few years ago. Uh, I'm on every few months. And uh, there was a director who heard me in uh, Germany. He had been doing hundreds of music videos and um, commercials for, for guys like U2 and Manowar and so forth. And he decided he wanted to be a science fiction movie director. So he moved here for me to mentor him, moved, moved to L.A. And he made eight science fiction movies in a row, all successful. His name's Neil Johnson. And we just started looking for a project to do together because he can do very low budget, very high quality films in terms of production, in terms of effects, all of that. So that was the beginning of it, and um, and then I reached out to my friend Doug Drexler, who won, who's won two Emmys and an Oscar for Battlestar Galactica and a lot of other shows. He comes off the, the Star Trek shows, and now he just did Blood and Chrome, which is the Galactica prequel that uh -huh. has two thousand effect shots. Wow! And he generated three hundred of them himself, and. Uh, and, and then I reached out to Ian, but I also reached out to a lot of actors that I've worked with. So Armin Shimmerman from DS9 and Buffy and, and, and Ethan Phillips from Star Trek Voyager and Bob Picardo from Star Trek Voyager and Doug Jones from Pan's Labyrinth and Hellboy and Rachel Luttrell from Stargate Atlantis and Amber Benson. I just met her and she wants to be in this, which is fine with me. This is going to be from, awesome. From Buffy, yeah. And, um, you know, because again, you know, all of us really want to do the work. And, you know, if, they, if they're convinced that you know what you're doing, they're, uh, it's not, it doesn't become about money. It's about because... It does become a risk. You know well, what I mean? Yeah. Like so many actors want to play it safe. 
Well, yeah, and it, it, so they, and they have to. Yeah, but but when they watch World Enough in Time, which is the Star Trek episode I did with George Takei, uh, they can tell that I'll, that I'm very respectful of actors. I love actors, and in fact, when I was brought aboard Sliders <clears throat> to reinvent the show after Fox kind of drove it into the ground, Sci-Fi gave us the marching orders to. Uh, to fix it, and we did. And, and it came, it, a lot of it comes from respecting your actors. We met up with our actors at that point and said, what do you think's working, what, what's not working? And they told us, and we fixed it. And so, so because the actors see me as, as someone who's going to give them something to do that's worth doing, uh, they're very eager to come aboard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I love actors. I mean, Ar- guys like Armin Shimmerman, how can you go wrong? He's terrific. And, and um, were you ever, did you ever act like in high school or, or college and that a sort of thing? A little teeny tiny bit, but not where you'd ever want to hire me at all <laughs> to I act. Mean, we were talking to students yesterday, yeah. um, and you teach as well. Yeah, yeah, we mentor a lot of writers and directors and actors okay. and producers, yeah. And, and I was talking to students yesterday about the importance of, of, of directing actors. Yes. Because you can have the script thought out, you can have the acting, you can have, if, if it's not inhabited, yes. believably, right. or, or to a satisfying degree, then you're, you're working with something pretty hollow. Yeah, well, my, my wife was an actress in New York and, uh, and also a director off-Broadway, so she really is kind of my, my uh, guidance in terms of how, to, like, for, I, I keep telling people that my directorial style is to go, honey, <laughs> <laughs> you know, how do I do this? The actor sucks. What do I do? Right. <laughs> and, uh, what and do you she, do when you have a bad actor? Well, I, first of all, you try not to have bad actors. You try right. to cast people who are solid. I mean, you know, a lot of directors say that 90% of the job is, is casting. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I actually agree with that. So I just choose really wonderful actors. And also actors who are, who are your partners. So I can say to Armin or whomever, you know, okay, here's what I'm trying to achieve or here's what I'm looking to do. You know, it's, it's very... Um, there's, not, I, there's no temperament ever. I mean, George Takei was phenomenal to work with. And Christina Moses, who played George's daughter in World Enough in Time, I'm casting her in uh, Space Command as well as the female lead. Um, she's phenomenal. She's the best actress I've ever worked with. And so you look for those people who are going to be really working hard and really showing up for the role. And then, you know, but, but with, I, I definitely have my wife Elaine by my side, and I say, okay, this is what I'm trying to get. What am I missing, or, or how or can you communicate it to the actor where they're going to get it? I mean, I'll, I'll try, but if I hit the limits of my ability, cause, because I'm principally a writer, and I direct and I produce it to serve the writer. But, but sometimes you get on set, mm-hmm. you've called the plays as well as you can call the plays, yeah. and you still find yourself with five yards to go to the goal right. line. Yeah, and then, and then what you do is you just, you, know, you just do your best. The good part is if you've got standing sets, you do your best, and then you edit it. There's a lot you can do in editing to just kind of bring it up. And then if it's not there, you bring the actor back, and you just say, "Okay, mm-hmm. here's what we let's take another crack at this." Or you rewrite the scene because sometimes part of the part of the challenge is always just saying, "Okay, what's the what's not working?" Because maybe because it may be a bad day for the actor, or you may not have communicated well, or they're not able to access the moment, or it could be that there's something wrong with the script. And you know, because often you know, you re- as the writer, when you step up as director, you have to kind of divorce yourself from the writer to a certain degree and say, "Okay." You know, yes, this, that was a nice line of dialogue, but do we really need it? Yeah, and, uh, no time to serve a story. Yes, yes, and, and hopefully as a director, when you're on set, things are occurring to you or you're getting ideas or you'll see an actor do something and say, oh, that was great, do that. Or, or you can pay that off in a later scene where, like, for instance, in World Enough in Time, Christina Moses did this great spin where she's being walked down the corridor by Kirk and she does this great spin and it was like, oh, wow. And then, then, then she kind of brought her arms in close and this kind of to savor the moment. And I then used that at the end of the episode. I, I brought that motion back, that gesture. It was like, oh, that's really good. And so, 
So part of it is just being observant and being present to what the actors are doing. Now, now World Enough in Time, that was the thing that wasn't Paramount supported. No, it was called Star Trek New Voyages. Now, now, what, now what was that? Because you'd worked, of course, on... You, you'd created a story for Next Generation. Yeah. You created a story for... DS9, Far, DS9. Beyond, far beyond the Stars, yeah. And then uh, you'd, you'd done some work on Babylon 5. Yeah, I wrote for that. Um, but and you, I also introduced uh, Joe Straczynski. I mean, I... You introduced Joe Straczynski because you well, knew him from He-Man. I brought, well... Did no, you know him from He-Man? No, here's what happened. Here's okay. what happened with Joe. Um, Michael, Reeves and, uh, Michael Reeves and I were writing animation. We were the gods of animation. Uh, we, Joe, when I first met Joe, he was writing newspaper articles. He wasn't in TV yet. He wasn't making a living, I don't think. Wow. And, uh, and so we did everything we could to get him into animation. And at the same time, he was sort of talking to the people we were working with in filmation, uh, Arthur Nadell and so forth. So he got into animation, and we were writing on a lot of the same shows. Then he story edited a real Ghostbusters, and he was very good as a story editor. So I was then hired to develop Captain Power uh, as and you a worked on real Ghostbusters too. Yeah, I, I love the I wrote, heck out of I wrote show. four of those. Yeah, and um, it was a fun show. <clears throat> so then I was hired. I spent a year developing Captain Power. It was a live-action science fiction show on the heels of, Cap- of uh, He-Man. Because Mattel, what happened was Filmation did such a shitty job on. In, okay, here's how it worked. Black Star, <laughs> Black Star, which is the shit. Right, it's a great show. I love. We can Black say Star. that on the internet. Yeah, well, there you we go. We can say things like Black Star, that cartoon from when you were shit. a kid, is I the agree. shit. Absolutely, and I agree with you. So Black Star was a great show to write for. Michael Reeves and I wrote. Almost all of them, I think, and uh, and but filmation was was looking to do less and less and less animation. So what they would do is, for instance, if you ever watched that show, they would use the same shots over and over You'd and over. You'd reset, and over. use right. the entire shell and cells so they, of, of right. characters. So and they stuff. had a, they had a shot of the, they were set these seven trobits, which were you know knockoff hobbits, and they had this shot of seven of the trobits running toward camera. And if you ever watched that shot, half the trobits look scared, and the alternate half look happy. And the reason they did that is you could have them running from a monster or running toward a birthday cake, you know, with the same shot. And so, so when they finished filmation for CBS, CBS basically said, well, we're done working with you guys because you're doing such a shitty job in the animation department. I mean, this is my understanding of this story. They said, we're not going to use you anymore. So, so filmation had to find a different model because the networks wouldn't buy their shows. So they then went to Mattel and Mattel financed um, He-Man. Okay. And that was a new model of the... Because for years... Toy companies, in the original, in, originally in, in television, like on a show like Space Patrol, the toys were integrated into the show. The stars of the show would, would do commercials in the middle of the show, you know, hawking the wares. And mm-hmm. then ultimately, um, the, I think the FCC cracked down, and you could no longer have that integration of the toy and the show at the, at the same time. But then Mattel kind of sidestepped that in syndication by doing He-Man, which basically was a half-hour commercial for those toys. Right. Since and he, you got yeah. G.I. Joe, you got right. Transformers. So the, it was, I mean, right. That's, that's how we know cartoons now. Right. So He-Man was a huge success. He-Man was a huge success. So on the strength of that, um, they... Um, Do you need to take that? Who, who is that? No. Is that J. Michael? No. It's the, <laughs> I'm just turning this off. I'm turning my phone off so that it will not be a bother. So, um, but on the strength of that, they, they then... They then decided to do Captain Power. They, uh, they decided to do Captain Power for, for Gary Goddard and Landmark. And Gary had the, the initial idea for Captain Power, but none of the characters were fleshed out. The world was not fleshed out. So I was brought aboard, and I spent a year developing that show. And they wanted me to story edit it, and I was doing features that time. So I couldn't story edit it, so I, I thought, oh, well, it's Joe Straczynski. <clears throat> he was one of my closest friends. And so I said to the two producers, uh, whose names you may recognize, John Copeland and Doug Netter, mm-hmm. I said... Uh, You've never heard of this guy, but hire him on my say-so, and I'll back him. If he can't do the job, I'll step in. I'll guarantee him. So they hired Joe on Captain Power, and those were the two producers he ultimately did, did Babylon 5 with. So that, that was the... Origin. That's insane. Yeah. So, so without, without you, no Babylon 5. That's right. 
at least no Babylon 5 yeah. in that permutation. How, how, now, how big was the check that you got for that? For Captain Power? No, for Babylon 5. Oh, Babylon putting the whole 5. thing together. Yeah, well, I think there'll be, there'll be like a, a fruit basket coming. But, uh, you know, but, it was, but I wrote for Babylon 5, and, uh, and it was fascinating. And Babylon 5 was very um, instructive in terms of having a big canvas and a big arc. Yeah. And, and, uh, having a, and having a direction. Yes. So many yes. of the shows these days, like... I don't. I mean, Lost. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe yeah. even this Battlestar Galactica remake. Well, da- Damon, do, do we know the destinations of well, some of these shows when well, you enter the writers' room well, on page one? Well, Damon Lindelof told me that it was very funny with with Lost because what happened was, it was you know he met with JJ. They basically had the, the idea that the island was a character, and and then they would have flashbacks to people's lives. That was what sold the show. This pilot was fast tracked, and got greenlit to series. And then JJ goes off to do Mission Impossible. And Damon Lindelof's never run a show, and he had no idea how, where the show went mm-hmm. after the pilot. None. Right. And so it was like, holy cow. So yeah, that's a tough place to be. Yeah. In. As whereas you know, with Joe, he had, it's, it's very funny because when we were working on Babylon Five, I said, Joe, look, because he'd been talking about the um, you know the five year arc and the triple encryption on on and the vault, everything locked away in a vault. Because even when I was writing for Babylon Five, I'm, I'm probably one of the few people who has the Babylon Five series Bible. You know, because well, Joe, Joe gave it to me. But it was even that document was extremely oblique. It said like one character will undergo a transformation at the end of season one. Which character? What transformation? You know, it's like now I know, but yeah. but not when I was writing it. So I said at one point I said, when in the middle of the series I said to Joe, well tell me, you know, with the, when you talk about the five year arc and the triple, triple encryption and all the material you have, the five hundred pages or whatever the hell he had, he was saying. I said, what is that? Is that like, have you written that out like a novel or, or what is that? And he said, well, no, it's just kind of notes. I said, okay, now I get it. So, but, but he did think it through and he, did, and he did know where he was going. The only problem was <clears throat> that he, all the time he was saying it was a five-year arc, he really believed, I think, at the fourth season that that was going to be the end of the show because Warner's canceled it, you know, P10. And he didn't know that Turner was going to pick it up, so he had to kind of hurry up and finish that, oh. the shadow stuff. And then he got a second, the final season, the fifth season, and it was kind of like vamping, I think, because he'd sort of finished his show and it would have been very nice if instead he'd known that he would have gotten his five years right, clear. Right, he could the story. Right, and that's why it kind of hurries up and finishes quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes, like, like production, yeah. just... <clears throat> well, yeah. So you, so it's, it's easier, in a way, to almost have a one-year arc for a show. Because, for instance, most of the shows I was on, we had a 22-episode order. <clears throat> so, like, on Sliders, or on any of the shows I was on staff, on Friday the 13th, the series, or there was another show I did called Beyond Reality that was kind of a Twilight Zone kind of show with Sherry Belafonte. We know, we know everything we wrote that year would get made, but you never know if the next season's going to get picked up. So, um, so it's much harder. But with something like Space Command, I can plan a very, very, very mm-hmm. big arc to where I'm going. Uh, I mean, one of our, our lines is, you've heard of a five-year arc. Well, you know, here's a 200-year arc. Right. You know, that's what we're up to. And, um, but, you know, but, but it's, and whether or not it'll all get made, who knows. But, or, or maybe some of it is yeah. uh, its iteration is film. So yes. maybe something like a comic book. Yes. Maybe something like a web series. Well, yes. Yeah, maybe. well, even with Magic Time, I wrote Magic Time. My wife and I wrote the pilot of Magic Time, two-hour pilot. It's been optioned six times. But then I spun it off as a series of novels and audiobooks and a radio play, sold to Marvel Comics at one point. And that's and, the ensemble that you do with friends. And yeah. Each of you guys yeah. write a different story. Yeah. Well, and now we're going to come back and, uh, and do it as a TV show. How long has that been on the shows, Magic Time? It's been in development. So the Geekscape is going to go buy it. Yeah. Well, it's on the shelf. The first book came out in 2001. second one came out in 2003. third one came out in 2005. And they're all available from Blackstone Audio mm-hmm. as well. as they were, And they were published by HarperCollins. So if you go on to Amazon, I'm sure you can find it. And, uh, you know, and then Armin Shimmerman did, did the, read the unabridged audio book. And then the radio play, we haven't put out yet, but we recorded it. And that's a lot of fun. And in, in, in you were telling me before we started recording that you wrote The Twilight Zone Companion at 22 years old. I started I mean, you when must, I was You must have grown up just loving The Twilight Zone. Yeah. Well, what is your favorite episode? My favorite episode is Walking Distance. 
which was, I think, Rod's favorite. It was uh, Gig Young goes back to his hometown and finds himself there in his own past and encounters himself as a kid. And it's just this really beautiful piece of work, very longing, fulfilled with longing, lots of melancholy, beautiful photography, beautiful acting, great score by Bernard Herrmann. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, wonderfully directed. And uh, it's just gorgeous. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's this jewel. Could you imagine Bernard Herrmann, who scored all those Hitchcock movies, doing television as well? Would know, you see amazing. something like a Hans Zimmer today doing... No, no. And then if you look at his score... Television. For, but yeah. if you look at the scores he did for, for Twilight on The Lonely or, or The After Hours, they're amazing, amazing scores. And it's very funny because the same season that, that Rod wrote um, Walking Distance, he also wrote A Stop at Willoughby, which is a very similar episode in terms of that same melancholy about a guy going back in the past to an imaginary sort of turn-of-the-century town. It was very funny because... In, in walking distance, he calls the town Homewood. And in, in uh, Stop at Willoughby, the town's called Willoughby. And I always wondered where he got those names from. And, and not long ago, I was in Hollywood, and there are two parallel streets. One is Willoughby and one is Homewood. And uh, I <laughs> and suspect that, that Rod was just kind of like driving. And they thought, oh, those would be good names. <laughs> and, and at 22, you were telling me you were crawling through Rod Sterling's mm-hmm. attic. Yes. For pieces for the book. <clears throat> yeah. Well, what happened was... Uh, I grew up with Twilight Zone and Star Trek and Outer Limits. Those are the three shows that made me want to be a writer. And when I was 13, I read The, Twi- the, the Making of Star Trek, which was the first book I ever read about how a TV show was made. It was, it was a hugely influential book on me. And, uh, and I heard Ray Bradbury speak at a library when I was 10. And it, it started things, the, the pot boiling. I knew I would either be a visual artist or a writer. And I, in fact, my degree is in painting, sculpture, and graphic arts. I was enrolled in UCLA's art school um, through clerical error. I never applied to that school but they accepted me. There was a mix-up in the paperwork. Hey, community colleges do that yeah. all the time. Well, I, yeah, but I, I applied as... I applied <laughs> it's as, UCLA. Well, I applied as an undeclared major in the College of Letters and Sciences, and I got accepted as a painting, sculpture, and graphic arts major in the College of Fine Arts. You're supposed to meet with faculty, show a portfolio. Never did any of that. Just said, well, this is the hand of fate. I'll, I'll go. And it was very useful. And so I was, I was having gallery shows of my work when I was 18 and 19 years old. And my, work, my, my artwork, my photography, and my, my paintings were appearing in national magazines. So, so then, but then at 19, I went to Clarion, to the Clarion Writers' Workshop which is the leading science fiction writing workshop in the country, and uh, sold my first short story through that, and, uh, and came back to UCLA, finished my, my college career, <clears throat> and then by the time I got out of, out of school, I knew I wanted to be a writer, producer, and TV. And uh, you know, also when I was a kid, I got a trip to the Star Trek set as a Christmas present. You must have freaked out. It was great. I, it, was the set, it, was the, uh, it was Turnabout Intruder. It was the last uh, Star Trek episode shot. If I'd come a week later, the show would have been gone. Wow. And so it was, I just got right under the wire. And you may funny, not even be doing yeah. this if you hadn't been on that no, set. No, it was great. It was great. But, but when I got out of college, I knew I wanted to be a writer-producer, but there were no classes in it. There was no way to learn it. So I thought, well, I'll write a book about one of the greatest TV shows ever made, <clears throat> and I'll learn how to do this job by talking to the people who did it. And uh, it was two years after Rod's death. I, we actually heard about Rod's death and when I was at Clarion, I was at Michigan State University during the six weeks of Clarion, and, and the word came down that Rod had died. He was only 50. I mean, it was 1975, August, That's of, rough. August of 75. Yeah, but he sure crammed a lot in those 50 years. And, uh, and then I got the idea of doing the book. I wouldn't have done the book if Rod was still alive because it would have been, well, if anyone should he write a book about the yeah, yeah, if anyone should write about the Twilight Zone, it would have been Rod. But since he was gone, I thought, well, let me take a crack at it. The challenge, of course, was I sold one short story. I have a degree in art. You know, I've heard that Carol Serling, Rod's widow, has already turned on major journalists who want to write about Rod. How are you so, going to get your foot right, door? Exactly. It was, it was a strategic question. So rather than going directly to Carol, which would have been a... If I, if I'd asked that would have been a no. Right, of course. And, and I, no, no doubt. And if I'd asked 100 people what my chances were, 100 people would have said none. So what I did was, I started going to science fiction conventions when I was 16 and, uh, and went every year from then on. And I met a writer named George Clayton Johnson. 
who was, a, who was a regular at these conventions, and he was one of the writers for Twilight Zone, and we'd become friends. So I interviewed him, and then I said, do you know anyone I, I can interview who worked on Twilight Zone? So he connected me up with Buck Houghton and Jerry Soule, who ghost wrote for Charles Beaumont on the final season and a half of Twilight Zone. And that's a fascinating writer, Charles it, Beaumont. Amazing, amazing writer, I have a yes. documentary on Charles Beaumont. Yeah, I'm in it. And, uh, but yeah, and he was, a, well, yeah, because he got, I, I was the one who first came out with the fact that he died of pre-senile dementia. Mm -hmm. he, that in the fat, last season and a half of Twilight Zone, he was, all the scripts were ghostwritten up by others because his mind was, he was losing Isn't his mind. Isn't that insane? Amazing, amazing. He died, he looked like he was 100 years old at his death, he was only 38. So he started mentally going mentally off at 33. I feel like I'm doing that with Geekscape sometimes. Well, there you go. These, but, these kids drive me nuts. Well, yeah. So, <laughs> but the, um, but so, but so, so, so I, over three months I interviewed 30 people who worked on the Twilight Zone. And, uh, and by then I knew a lot about the subject. I felt fairly confident that I could pull it off, or very confident actually. So then I, I set the meeting with Carol. And so I went to this big house. It was Rod's house. I went to Rod's house in Pacific Palisades. This big house. It was so big it had two living rooms and, uh, and one room just for the trophies. The, wow. six, the six Emmys and the three Hugos and the Peabody Award. And, uh, and I remember standing there and Carol was sitting on this big sofa and I remember telling her what I had in mind and laying out this future of me writing this book and how I was going to do it. And I saw that future as clearly as I see you in front of me. I, could, I, I absolutely felt You shocked. could hold the book in your hands. I, could feel, I, could be, I believed 100% that I could pull this book off. And so then Carol clearly talked to the people I'd, I'd interviewed and they, the people she trusted, and they said, well, he seems like he can do it. In fact, recently I, I, I ran into George Clayton Johnson, who's now 80, and I said, George, I was curious. When you met me, you know, when I was 22 years old, what made you think I could pull this off? And he said, you just seemed really intelligent. I just felt you could do it. And uh, really intelligent and really driven. And so, so Carol came back and she said, okay, we've got full access to everything. And so for the next several years, I, I would go often, Every, you know, every few days to the house, to, to Rod's house. It was exactly as he'd left it. So all of the books were there, all the scrapbooks. In his garage were 16-millimeter prints, his prints of the Twilight Zone. Many had never even been put through a, through a projector. They had the original commercials, the original coming attraction spots. They were gorgeous. And even his dog was there, the senile Irish setter. And, um, <clears throat> and so up in his attic, that's where his scrapbooks were, and that's where you know, boxes were piled high in his files. And so then there were these big leather volumes. He subscribed, he subscribed to a clipping service, and everything that was written about him through most of his career, his secretary would clip out and paste in these scrapbooks. So it was like the Encyclopedia Rod Serling. And uh, it was amazing. <clears throat> and so I just, you know, so I interviewed 100 people who worked on the show, and, uh, and I, I, I really put in the time and the effort. And uh, the book came out. It was an instant bestseller. It's been in print for 30 years. And, uh, but, but people passed on that book. Yeah, it was rejected by 25 publishers over a two-year period. And that's where it's very important to have something called a wife. Because right. Elaine said, just keep going. Elaine was the one who got that book done. What year did you get, oh, how old were you when you got married? I was 21 when I got married. And you're still with Elaine? Yeah, I am. We're about to celebrate our 35th, what is the 30, our 35th anniversary well, this month. What is the secret? Because on yesterday's episode when I was just talking about the Geekscape, is yeah. I said the secret in my marriage, it's only two years old, Congrats. is, thank you, is, is every night I inception my wife with horrible dreams so when she wakes up next to me, it's got to be better. Well... That's, do you inception your wife? That's at one all? way of doing it. That's absolutely <laughs> one way of doing it. I, I'm not going to say no to that. But uh, my my advice is basically the the other person is your best friend, and you take the you take the stance that you're not going anywhere. And so if you have troubles, if you're not communicating, you get help. So you don't you, you don't you let take things, divorce. You take separation off the table. You take it off the table, and you do not 
I mean, a suicide pact comes before divorce, you know? Right. And so, you know, but it's, but it's literally, it's like, okay, if that person's not happy, it's my problem. I've got to deal with it. If she's mm-hmm. not happy, something's wrong, and I can't just blow that off. And, and she it, sees likewise. Yeah, and yes. And if we're not communicating, we need, a, we need a third party. We need to go to counseling or whatever. We need to get someone who can be a translator so we can hear each other. And, um, and also the other part of it is saying, okay, if, if there's something the other person wants and there's something you want and they're at odds, you say to yourself, well, does what they want, is that more important to them than what I'm holding out for? And, and you, learn to com- you learn to compromise. You learn to meet in the middle. But also you have to be with someone who supports your dreams and you have to be with someone who supports your vision. Because if, they're, if, you're, if you want to be a writer-director and they're saying, well, why aren't you working at, at, at right. Shakey's? You know, why aren't you bringing in the bucks? You know, you're screwed. And, you know, and, and you know, we've kept our overhead low. There have been times when our rent has been 3% of our income. 3%. That's fantastic. Yeah, and that's because it allows me to take the time to learn new things. It allows me to do what I want to do. And that's the other thing I was talking about yesterday was that period where it's you first start dating, mm-hmm. everything's great. It's very cool to be dating a storyteller or a creative. Yes. And there's that longer period where it's very not cool financially yes. as you're getting established. Yes. And then if you give it enough time and you have enough faith and you, you knock at that wall enough, it starts being yes. cool again for both of you, both creatively satisfying and yes. you get to see your partner start to make all this cool stuff. Yes, it's fun. She got to see you write the littles. Yes, well, yeah, and she and, she, and, she and I've written to, and we've been together. And she writes with you. Yeah, we've written together professionally. We wrote on, on uh, Lazarus Man. We wrote, uh, we wrote uh, uh, Liberty's Kids, which we were nominated for the Humanitas for that. So, you know, yes, and we, and we read each other's work or give notes or, or we help each other in production terms. She's a terrific producer, much better than I am, much better director than I am. So, mm-hmm. so I, I look to her for guidance and advice. Even with Space Command, every day I'm saying, what do I do with this? What do I do with that? Mm-hmm. Because she's also a much better team manager than I am. So I'll say, okay, we got trouble with this person or, or these two people are butting heads. Let's, you know, how do I fix it? Right. <coughs> so, you know. How do I fix it without copping out? Like, how, yeah. how, how do I not just ease my way out of this no, situation no. conveniently? How do, I, no. how do I make this something engaging and awesome? Well, you have to be in charge, but you also have to rule with a light touch so uh-huh. that people don't feel that you're being an autocrat. And right. so, so be, uh, it's funny, when I, when I was going to direct uh, the World, uh, world You can't let kill the collaborative. No, you can't. But yeah. well, it's very funny, when I was, when I was uh, writing, when I was uh, prepping to do World Enough in Time, the Star Trek episode, I reached out to J.J. Abrams and I reached out to Guillermo del Toro for advice. And one thing that Guillermo said to me was he said, um, ask everyone's opinion, listen to your gut. And I thought that was great. And I'm doing a book with Guillermo now. I mean, I know she's wearing the Pacific Room t- I am. T-shirt. Yeah, I am. I am. Exactly. Totally forgot. Yeah. Yeah. Guillermo's terrific. Well, and, where uh, our yeah. booth is at San Diego, and of course I welcome Space Command to promote it. Our cool. booth. Great. Total gratis. Because yeah. I just love having a project like this synonymous with, with Geekscape. If you've seen the Geekscape logo, it's a young Buck <laughs> Rogers-ish geek. That's great. Like that is that that's that's our thing. So that's great. Um, we are right around the corner from Legendary, so the Legendary wow. girls are always giving us freebies that's from, great. from the booth. And, that's great. And this, this specific rim T-shirt <laughs> yeah. was one of them. That's a collectible. Okay, so you were talking about uh, Charles Beaumont, Rod Sterling, these creatives that you were looking up to, yes. and kind of formed you as a writer as a, as a creative. Yeah. You recently put out this uh, press release that when Ray Bradbury died that, that he was one of your mentors. Yes, absolutely, yes. That's got to be devastating. It's, it's I mean, funny. he was a pillar for you. Yes, I saw Ray just a few weeks ago. We, I'd go over to his house every month or two and we'd just hang out and talk for the last 15 years. What is that like, just it hanging was, out with Ray Bradbury? It was super cool. It was the best. It was so fun. It was like Walt Disney. Yeah, it was amazing. Better than Walt Disney. Ray told me about when he met how Walt Disney had lunch with him. It was cool. What was that story? Oh, it was so funny. He was in the supermarket, and uh, he ran into Walt Disney. And he said, uh, and it turned out they were both fans of each other's work. And 
And Ray said, I'd love to get together with you for lunch sometime. And Walt said, well, come to the office tomorrow and we'll have lunch. So we went to Walt's office and they sat and they talked. And, uh, and Walt said, um, we could never work together because we're both geniuses and we drive each other crazy. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, but he said, if there's anything you'd like, just ask for it and it's yours. And Ray said, open your vaults for me. Open your vaults for me. And so he called down to the vault and he said, give him anything he wants. And so Ray went down and he filled his arms with original cells and brought them home. So, oh my God. <laughs> so he oh like, my God. He had, he had a ton of original cells from the, from the Disney classic films. So yeah. Just like that. Yeah, just like that. Well, Ray was this enormous um, movie buff, huge. And when he was a kid, the first thing, because he, he grew up in Waukegan, Illinois, and, um, and, when he, and then his family moved to Arizona because of the Depression, looking for work. And then they went back to Illinois and then moved, moved to ultimately to L.A. This is all in the 1930s. And uh, so Ray was a kid. And, and so Waukegan and Arizona basically formed the Mars that he wrote about. That, that's where you get the Martian Chronicles from, the desert of Arizona and, the, and that sort of Victorian homey quality of Waukegan, Illinois. So, but when he got to L.A., the first thing he did, he, he was in his roller skates. He was like you know, 12, 13 years old. And he said, the first person, he said, where's MGM? Because he wanted to roller skate down to MGM and get autographs from the stars. And they told him where MGM was. And he said, well, that's too far. What's the nearest movie studio? And they said, Paramount. So he roller skated. So he lived in Hollywood. He didn't live in Culver City. No, he was like in in, in closer to Paramount. So he he roller skated to to Paramount. And coming out of the gates of Paramount was W.C. Fields. And he asked him for an autograph. And W.C. Fields signed the autograph and handed it back to him and said, there you are, you little son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And that was his introduction to Hollywood. So for the next... The next decade or so, he was hanging outside the studios and getting uh, autographs. He showed me, he had a little wooden box that he showed me filled with his autographs. So he had Ida Lupino and Marlena Dietrich and all the major stars, oh Humphrey Bogart, all the major stars of Hollywood in this little wood, wooden box. And, but he would hang out with different autograph collectors at the movie premieres. He'd go to the movie premieres and he'd go to the studios. And so he told me that when Moby Dick premiered, this is the movie that he wrote for, for John Hughes. Gregory Peck was yes, it? Yes. He was going to the premiere. He's walking toward the theater on the red carpet with John Houston and his wife oh and Ray and goodness. his wife. And he looked back, and behind the rope were this mother and son, grown son, that had been autograph collectors with him. That He had, he had been on the other side of the ropes with them for years when he was Now a he's kid. writing this film. Right. He's so on ex- the red carpet. So he excuses himself from John Houston, walks up to them, to the mother and, and son, and, sa- and says, hi. You know, he's, he was so glad to see them, and he shook their hand. And they said, well, what are you doing here? Because he hadn't seen them for a while. And they said, oh, well, I wrote this movie. And they said, oh, wow. Suddenly he was surrounded by everyone asking for his autograph. And he signed autographs to everyone and then, went, then rejoined John Houston and the wives and went into the movie premiere. But he said that was the, one of the greatest moments of his life to do that. When was your moment? My moment in terms w- w- of... In my... transitioning acro- across that barrier where you're like... Wow. I mean, because you were a I was, was going to say this interview. You know, <laughs> <laughs> this is a high point. It, you know, you it's all what? downhill from here. Peg said the same <laughs> damn thing. So I think... <laughs> Kevin my, Smith said that. <laughs> what was my, well, well, the moment of transition, you know, there have been a lot of them. You know, it's funny. But that moment where you said, okay, like, the, like, like I'm on the other side of the ropes here. Uh, for, well, for me, you know, I, it, it's, it's very permeable. You know, it's like I have no arrogance toward, I don't, I don't divide people into camps of, the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of those who There's are, no rope. No, not for me. And it's sort of whoever can come to something with a good heart and a, an ability, I'll, I'll, you know, I want them aboard. But, but for me, the moment when I felt like I was living the dream, when it really had happened... Well, when the Twilight Zone Companion came out, that was great. They they, they had me on the. To, uh, well, they flew me up to 
San Francisco to do a series of media interviews, and I was in the suite at the, you know, at the, at the top of the mark, and that was great. But, but, I, but one of the high points, real high points, was one day when two studios were filming two of my scripts simultaneously. Oh, my God. Which was... they, were sh- they were shooting Far Beyond the Stars at Paramount, and they were shooting my Sliders episode at Universal. And I actually got photos of both casts at the two different studios with me in the same clothes. So, because that, that, was, that was amazing. And, and it was weird when I was doing commentaries for... Morning Edition. I was a commentator on Morning Edition for three years, and it was very weird to wake up and have my voice coming out of the radio. And there was a strange feeling that was just coming out of that one radio yeah, yeah. to me, you know, that wasn't going out over the, across the country. And but when the Twilight Zone came, book came out, it was successful. Or when I started writing for TV, I mean, my dream was always to write for television. So writing for you know all these great shows was just a dream come true. It's you know writing for and, and sometimes hiring actors that you've grown up admiring. I mean, when I got to work with Ray Walston on Friday the Thirteenth series, when I got to write for him, and I'd grown up watching my favorite Martian stuff like that is just great. That's incredible. You know or. Yeah, and I just well, my I, favorite Martian, or you were a big fan of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, but it's like these. Guys, but I see, I love these character actors. I love yeah. uh, guys like Armin Shimmerman and Ethan Phillips and and Doug Jones and all these guys. I mean, just they're just such. They're, they're actors. Great. They're true actors. They don't fall into that. That they're the, they're they don't fall into their habits. No. They don't fall into those they're character great. archetypes that people expect them to or pay no. tickets to see. They're, they're, great. they're still brave. Yeah, well, it's very funny because because when Armin Armin and I were talking, I was talking to him about Space Command, and he was saying, well. Uh, what role, you know, what role am I playing? Because we were going to videotape, him t- <laughs> we were going to videotape him talking about the role he was going to play. And I said, Well, Armin, you can play any role you want to play, but the one I've written for you is this is this is this guy named Darian, this character named Darian. And he said, Well, then that's the one I'll play. <laughs> you yeah, know, but yeah. it's but it's sort of like. But the thing is also, it's great because you have this between me and and the actors or or the other members of my team. There's this very easy conversation, this very easy give and take. You know, I've, I haven't had the experience with actors like pulling, you know, storming out in a huff or hiding in their trailer or, or, or playing any of these games that you hear about actors playing. With, I've been very lucky with all the actors I've ever worked with. They want to do a good job. And if I give them good material, they're very collaborative and very eager to work with me. And, and, and if they come back to me and say, well, I have a question about this or, or, or I'm having trouble with this line, fine, let's, let's work it out. It's a discussion, yeah. Yeah, no problem with that. It, so... Last, last, last thing on Ray Bradbury because I, sure. I, I, I mean it's so to- it's forever. so topical yeah. and it's so sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you said yeah. uh, when Abraham Lincoln died, his Secretary of State said, "Now he belongs to the ages." You say, "Now Ray belongs to the future because the future always belonged to him." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's just his Mars, the Mars of Martian Chronicles, or or the world of, of Montag and Fahrenheit four five one. Those are as real to me. As anything in my life, there, particularly the Martian Chronicles, has, has had a huge Im, Im, uh, influence on me. And if you ever watch World Enough in Time, there's there's a speech that George Takei gives about me being marooned on this alien planet, and he talks about you know the the Dead Sea and the and the Crystal Towers, and, the, and that's Ray's Mars. That's mm-hmm. my my tribute to Ray, and uh, and you know, I mean, I was, I was just so I was so lucky that we became friends. It was such an an odd circumstance because. Uh, you know, I saw Ray speak at a library when I was 10, and it made me want to be a writer. And he, he said, as a writer, ideally, your life and your work and your art should all stem from the same place. And I was like, wow, that was just so profound. For the sincerity, for and, the honesty of and, the human experience. And so I read, I read Ray's work voraciously. And I, any time he was interviewed on TV or radio, I would you know, watch that or record it. And, I, and every time he was giving a talk at a convention or at UCLA or wherever, I'd go hear it. But we weren't friends. I mean, we'd, we'd cross paths, but we weren't friends. And when I, when you I were probably the creepy stalker kid. I probably was. I still, I still am. And but the uh, but but also when I when I was doing the Twilight Zone companion, he wrote one episode of the Twilight Zone. I sing the body of Lect- uh, I sing the body of Lect- But when I was up in Rod's attic, there was a bar a box that was unmarked, and I opened it 
and it was filled with twilight zone scripts that were bought but not made. Wow. And so there were scripts by Serling and Matheson and Beaumont and Arch Obler, who created Lights Out, and Two by Ray. But Richard Matheson had some of his episodes many, made. Many, and many. He had many. Yeah, and, and Beaumont and Rod, of course. I, I mean, I still think I Am yes. Legend is the best horror book ever written. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a terrific book. But the thing is, there were two by Ray, Ray Bradbury. So I, reached, I wrote Ray, and I said, I'd like to interview you for the Twilight Zone book. And he declined. He, hmm. For many decades, he refused to talk about his experience on Twilight Zone. And later, when we became friends, he told me all those stories, which were very interesting. But, um, but the way I got to know Ray, because we knew each other in passing, but not, we weren't friends. And then what happened was, when I was a producer on Sliders, they made a miniseries of Moby Dick starring Patrick Stewart as Ahab. And because, I remember that. Yes, and yeah. because Gregory Peck had played Ahab in the Houston version... Uh, he played Father Mapple in the Patrick Stewart one. He gave this sermon and actually won an Emmy for it. And he was great in that. But he had always, it, everyone had always said, or he had said, Greg Peck himself had said that he was miscast as Ahab. In fact, when he was making the movie, he said to John Houston, you should be playing this part, not me. John and, Houston? Yeah. He said, well, Greg, there's something about a director that might lean, you know, well, yeah. lay into the, the... Well, Houston would have been a great yeah. Ahab. Yeah. You know, he would have been terrific. But so Gregory Peck was sitting behind me at the screening of the miniseries. So I introduced myself and I asked him if I could send a lobby card from Moby Dick for him to sign because Ray had actually signed that to, to me. So, so Gregory Peck sent it back to me, signed. It was great. But um, it started my mind thinking... And I'd come across an LP, a record album, uh, a, an audio dramatization of Moby Dick with Charles Lawton as Ahab. And huh. it was phenomenal. Lawton was, a, was one of the most, most brilliant actors ever. Island of Dr. Moreau, Island of Lost Souls, you know, um, many film roles. Great. He was great in Les Miserables. Phenomenal. <clears throat> so I had this crazy idea, which was <clears throat> to edit The Ultimate Moby Dick with Ahab, played by Charles Lawton, uh, Gregory Peck as Father Mapple and Richard Basehart as Ishmael. So I, I re-edited the audio track for that. So it was, those, it was a 90-minute yeah. audio version, which I gave out that year as a, as a Christmas present to my friends. I had a, a friend of mine do a little cover for the CD that showed them in those roles, and I just sent it out. And I never would have had the temerity to give it to Ray because I'm screwing with his work. Yeah, he wrote the original so film. I so I come home shortly after this, and there's a message on my answering machine. It's like, hello, Mr. Zikri. This is Ray Bradbury. I've just listened to your Moby Dick. Please Uh-oh. call me. And I think, oh, no. Uh. <laughs> I pissed off Ray Bradbury. Oh, great. <laughs> Who sold you out right. is the next so, thought. <laughs> so with my, with my heart in my throat, I call Ray. And he says, I, I, was friend, I was dear friends with Charles Lott, and I listened to your Moby Dick, and I loved it. Come over to the house. So, so I went over to his house, and we talked, and we just really hit it off. And, uh, and then we became dear friends. And then I had this idea about doing this, this thing, a miniseries called Lost Mars. I, there were 20, over 20 Martian stories that Ray wrote that aren't in the Martian Chronicles. They follow the same structure. And so I proposed doing an eight-hour miniseries called Ray Bradbury's Lost Mars. And Ray gave me, the, gave me permission to take it out and pitch it. And I brought aboard Michael Nankin, who was a, director, a, dear, a friend of mine from, who directed Battlestar Galactica. I attached him. I laid out the entire eight hours. And about a year ago, we, we took it out and could not sell it. Could wow. not sell it. And so ultimately, with, with what's going on with Kickstarter, I'd love to, after Space Command, do Lost, Ray Bradbury's Lost Mars. I'd love to do that. But uh, we'll see what happens. But, you know, so we, we were just great friends. Last thing he said to you. Do you remember Yes, he um, he said. Huh, that's interesting. You know, um, it's funny. I went over the, the last time, and he wasn't. And did he know it was? No, it was close. No, no, but he was clearly on the fade. He was. He'd been struggling for some time, and he was bedridden. Though he would always, they would always, he would always be sitting in in a chair when we met next to the bed, and uh, um, and he was, you know, dressed nicely. You know, he was. He was. He made. He made a real effort to kind of. Give, give everyone his best, and I mean his best effort, right. and his, his best self. 
And so we talked, and I told him about Space Command and what I was doing, and he was very, very encouraging about that and very, really liked what I was up to. Because uh, I dedicated World Enough and Time to him, and certainly Space Command is dedicated to him. And can we him. see World Enough and Time online if you, Yes, if you go to spacecommandmovie.com, you can uh-huh. watch it in its entirety. You just click through right there. It's got George Takei in it. George Takei. The whole thing. Yeah, Majel Barrett plays the, plays, plays the computer voice. It's the last, last thing she did. Wow. So, yeah, and uh, she died shortly thereafter. So, so, but, so I think the last thing was, I, I, you know, as I would always do when we parted, I'd, I'd, I'd kiss Ray on the head, and, and he'd, he'd say that he loved me. That was it. So, you know, wow. it's like, that's not bad. You know, that's not a bad gift from Ray Bradbury, you know, and, uh, you know, he was just, it's funny, because when I heard that he had died, it hit me a lot harder than I thought it would. It's, you know, he's not, he was 91, he was clearly, you know, I mean, I was surprised that he lasted as long as he did, because he was in ill health from the first time I met him, you know, he'd had a stroke, but he was such a fighter, he had such a life force, my God. Still he's, cognizant. Still cognizant, still brilliant, I'm amazing, man. One of, the, one of the best things he ever said to me was, he said, looking back over a lifetime, you see that love was the answer to everything. It's like, Wow. And I, I told that to Guillermo, and Guillermo put it in his novel, the, the third novel that he just wrote. It's in there. The Strain? Yeah, the, the third book in the Strain trilogy, yeah. And, and that's uh, a comic book by Dark Horse. I'm reading the comic. Yeah, and wow. The books are probably... That's fun. Yeah, yeah, but, are, you, are you crying, Mark? Did you yeah, tear up? I'm, I'm sorry. Sure, of course. No, I'm it, sorry. No, it's, no, no. <laughs> well, Ray, Ray was, a, was an easy crier, too. He wore his heart on his sleeve, you know. And, uh, but no, but I mean, I'm so blessed. My God, the people I've gotten to know. I mean, when you think about it, it's like... I, here's, here's a little kid watching Twilight Zone and Star Trek and Outer Limits and dreaming these dreams of, of working in television and film and books and being moved by, I mean, the, the lessons I took from Rod Serling and Ray Bradbury, because they did books and films and television. And what Ray would say to me is, you do that because then no one can own you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you're not a pawn of the studios or the networks. You're not, you know, if you just keep writing books and keep going between those three and just do what you love. And, um, and so I got to grow up to know, you know, Matheson and, 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 and George Clayton Johnson and Ray Bradbury and Ted Sturgeon and Harlan Ellison and all these people who are basically gods to me. These in were, a lot of ways, yeah. you got to know Rod Sterling better than some yes. people that may have even been in his life. Yeah, well, Rod, no. The thing that I was, one thing that was really lucky is I found out that Rod taught a class in writing <clears throat> that a friend of mine d- held, and uh, he had taped them. And I oh, my au- God. there was audio and video of Rod teaching these classes in writing, and it was totally candid because this, none of this was broadcast and so I got a hold of those tapes when I was doing the Twilight Zone Companion and it was literally like being a fly on the wall and something else I should mention that's really fun is if, you, if, pe- if people go to markzickery.com I just wrote a spec Mad Men script with Rod Serling as a character and I gotta tell you <laughs> he is such a fun character to write because Rod was incredibly salty and, and earthy and you just did that for fun I did it for, as, to have a writing sample because you have to have new writing samples as a writer and, uh, and it's, because the idea was when, when Twilight Zone was cancelled Rod went to ABC to try to get them to pick up Twilight Zone. He called it Rod Serling's um, Witches, Werewolves, and, and Warlocks, you know, and, uh, and he was hoping to sell it, you know, cause, and, uh, and it went disastrously wrong. Mm-hmm. And he then went to the press and said, you know, and badmouthed ABC. And, uh, and, uh, and so I basically had the idea that, that when that happens, Don Draper tries to get him as a client, as a, as a spokesperson. Because he writes that one manifesto. Well, because Rod, yeah. Rod, was, Rod was the most successful commercial spokesman ever on TV commercials. And so Don Draper goes after him to get him to do commercials for his clients, to get him to be exclusive. And it's about these two guys who are both sort of suicidal at that point because it's Rod's low point in his career. Twilight Zone's just been canceled. He's exhausted. And he's just wondering what the hell his future is going to be. And so I basically had the two of them cross paths. And, uh, and it was great fun writing it. And, uh, and Rod, I was really able to, to nail Rod's character. They've got to make that. It would be great. I, but if, if people want to read that script, they can go to markzickery.com and just download it. It's there. That's so, awesome. Yeah, way fun. So you're still soliciting work. Mm, yeah. 
yeah. from the studio. Do you think there's an ageism in Hollywood? Because like I, when I see all the talented people who are working on Space Command, yes, and they've they've had legendary careers. I mean, I'm I'm yes. looking at your Wikipedia page and your in your IMDb and. You and the Space Command crew are in, have been involved in some of our favorite shows, which I think it yeah. really is why the Kickstarter was so successful, because yes. you guys have such goodwill built up from the fan bases of all these properties you guys yes. have worked on for the last 30 years. Yes. So why do you have to write a spec for Mad Men? Why do you well, have to keep, keep okay. cow-towing to these assholes? Well, Sorry. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, though, right? Like, like, well, yes, I do understand what you're saying. You guys and, are the talent. Well, they don't perceive it that way. They don't perceive it that way, and uh, you know it's uh, it, you know it, to answer your question: Is there ageism in Hollywood? Yes. Is there racism? Is there sexism? Yes. But things are better than they used to be. Thank God. You know, mm-hmm. he, uh, when I was when I was writing the Twilight Zone companion, I found a photo of the of the crew, uh, the Twilight Zone crew. And for one thing, they were all in suit suit and tie, which is pretty hilarious. Crew guys, grips wearing suit and tie wow. on set, but uh, but they were all white guys except for the script girl who was a white woman. Mm-hmm. And that's different now. And you now have showrunners who are women. You have showrunners who are African-American and so forth. So that's great. But, but it is a very youth, youth-oriented industry. And, um, you know, so you can't ever take anything for granted. You can be on top of the world, and a few years later, they won't hire you. They won't right. talk to you. It's, but, but, you know, at some point, you stop complaining about the way things are and you say, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to keep on my path regardless? You know, the most, most powerful question you can always ask is, if no one picks me, how do I pick myself? Mm. And so, you know, it, it's useless to complain about something. And it's also useless to keep banging your head against a wall, um, you know, unless, unless the wall gives. <laughs> but, but, but I see you guys in... It's, it's funny because we, we're, we're talking about Prometheus this week with the mm-hmm. movie coming out. I don't know if you've seen it mm-hmm. or not. I have. But that is, that is a movie that on a macro level talks about concepts and kind of works. But yeah. on a micro level, you have a bunch of 20, 30-year-old specialists, quote-unquote. Yes. They're all scientists in the tops of their field. Yeah. They're all, uh, all acting like assholes. I know. I agree. And, and I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. Like, like I mean, they're acting like yes. – I, I don't want to spoil it because we're going to no. uh, get into Prometheus later this yeah. week in a, in a big way. Right. But they're all acting like assholes. They're supposed to be the best of the best. Yes. No one in their 20s and 30s, I think, are the best of the best. Well, so, here, so, I, so I have yeah. you, Mark, sitting here, and you've got <laughs> uh-huh. talent that speaks for itself just based on the, the, you know, yeah. the, the, all do, of I your work. The, I can do the trick, absolutely. And you've got to write the damn spec script? It makes well, me angry. Let me answer that, but first let me talk about Prometheus for a second. I won't spoil anything, okay. but it would have been helpful if they had actually gone and hung out with a real archaeological team. Because any time you're with an archaeological team, they're not at each other's throats. They're excited at what they're finding. They're really digging it. You know, this is a huge, huge mission, and people would be excited. The thing, I think what they were trying to do was emulate the Nostromo with everyone at, their th- at each other's throats, but that's an oil rig. That's a, those are blue-collar guys. Some of the guys are drawing a salary. Some of the guys, it's, it's very class-oriented and stratified and so forth. So it's like, but that's not the same as an archaeological dig. You're right. You know? I so hadn't thought about that, but the Nostromo yes. and Alien, absolutely. That's right, and so that's the reason. Or even if you look at Aliens... Or Predator, you know, where you have well, these yeah. guys who are all doing the, the, right. the, the, the well, peeing even, contests. Well, well, even Aliens, you know, um, Ripley's reticent to go, but she's trying to get her, her pilot's license back, and the, and the and the grunts, the soldiers, are, are initially um, antagonistic toward her. So there's a built-in antagonism. But in Prometheus, like, why are these people all, all at each other's you know, throats? From the get-go. From the get-go. There's no reason. And so that's a problem. But, but nevertheless, it's still a, a gorgeous film. And, you know, and there, there's actually a new... A new um, and I say I loved it. Yeah. Because yeah. 
those scenes were designed so well as suspense scenes. Yeah. There's some really well done and scenes. And it's a gorgeously there. designed movie, and it's just, I'm, I'm going to go see it again. Just and wish it's just, it was smarter. Just yeah, wish, like, I know. Why, why can't they, I mean, do you have to, do you have to kowtow to the convention? No, but that, You know, but, because, but, because just to make yeah. a Hollywood, just to make a Hollywood film, and, and then the other argument is if you don't, mm-hmm. because I, I love Danny Boyle's Sunshine. I thought huh. the, the first three theaters <laughs> of that movie are great, yeah. and then it kind of falls to convention and yeah. becomes the grudge towards yeah. the end. But if you, but then if you totally askew what the audience right. wants, you'll end up with something like Soderbergh's Solaris, that he, the yeah. remake of Solaris right. he did with Clooney, where yeah. it's, it's no. kind of just watching a painting. Yeah, I know. And, and, and it's, uh, I love the Tarkovsky one, but the, other, but the remake, ugh. But the thing is, well, two things about that. One is that I think a lot of times it's just people trying to do their best work, and it's really hard. You know, it's a huge team of people. Everyone has to do their job well. You know, and it's just you do you do your best, and, and sometimes you're in the middle of the forest and you can't see the forest. You mm-hmm. just you're just the trees are all around you. Right. So you know, and so it's a miracle if anything turns out well or comes together. And but the other part of it is that um, <clears throat> you know, there's a new genre of film that people haven't um, mentioned, and I, I thought of this when I saw Titanic, which is it's a genre of movie where if you just ignore the people talking in the foreground, it's great. <laughs> And so that's true of many right. films, but this because it's like Titanic's like that. Wow. Just look at it on a macro level. Yeah, yeah, on just, a macro level, I really yeah, loved right. Prometheus, and then yes, and then on the yes. micro, the filmmaking. Right, exactly. But if you just look look at all the stuff going on in the background, it's super cool. <laughs> yeah, know, so, yeah, boats going. So, to answer, but to answer your question, why do I need to write specs? Um, it, they don't care about your resume. They don't care about what you've done in the past. They don't care about anything. They just, you know, and, and, and often they won't even read the samples. You know, it's just sort of like, okay, you, you roll the ball. But part of the reason, but you can either try to get them to get it or you can build your own empire. Which is what know? the Space Command well, is. Well, yes, it is. It is. And that doesn't mean, I mean, obviously, if, you know, if Rock Neil Bannon reaches out to me to work on Defiance or Cult, you know, you know we're, we're old pals, or some other show that interests me, sure, of course, I'd, I'd be happy to. Or, or if the networks come aboard Space Command, if they love what we're doing. I named Stargate. Yeah. I, I named Geekscape. Mm-hmm. After Rockney's Farscape. That's fun. My favorite sci-fi series. Yeah. Well, he and I met, met initially when we were working on the new Twilight Zone together and, uh, and just hit it off, and we've been friends ever since. Does, does, Far, does Rockney hang out with you guys in this group? Yeah. Well, I'm no. going. I'll be the creepy guy. I'll be the creepy guy. <laughs> I'll be the creepy guy. Because well, I mean, I've talked about Rockney when they came out with the Blu-rays of yeah. Farscape, about Rockney coming on the, on the, on the he was going to come on the couch, but then the Farscape stuff, yeah. the promotion window is over. Yeah. And, you know, and, well, you and, should get and, him on now for the, the, the two new shows. He's gotten two Yeah, and, and I want to get Rockney on here just to say, listen, like, this podcast is named after Farscape and how much I love it. Yeah, he's a great guy. He's a great and, guy. And so, so you've got Space Command. And guys, yeah. honestly, the website, spacecommand.com. Yes, no, spacecommandmovie.com. Spacecommandmovie.com. But it's not just one movie. It's no. a series of movies. It's a bunch of heavyweights mm-hmm. from shows that you all love, yes. the, the science fiction shows from the last... 25 years. Yeah, it's all the major shows, all the major American shows. But, it's, but, yeah. but what I like about it is the design of it because cool. it has a little bit of a Buck Rogers, a little bit of a Jetsons, mm-hmm. a little bit of Lost in Space yeah. style to it. Yeah. But it's not. No. Well, well, well. I don't want to say campy. No, and not it's, at all. It's not fun. At all. No, and, and I can I can talk I can I can speak to that. And, and by the way, a moment ago I said if the if the networks wanted to come aboard Space Command, you know that would be interesting. But that's not really where I'm going because people said I could I could. You don't take, have to go there. No, I don't. And and also, you know, when I was conceiving of this, various friends of mine who are A-list people who I'm working with on other projects wanted to walk this in, and I said no, I want to I want to go this route because I don't need notes and I don't need. You know, they might not muck it up. They might not. They might not wreck it. But why take the chance? Why, if I don't have to, why? You Screw know. it. You're a capitalist. Why share a piece of the pie? Well, but that's what I've got to say. But it, is, it isn't even <laughs> why that. cut them a slice? No, but it, is, it isn't even that because I'm, I'm not looking to make a fortune off this. I'm doing it because I want to do it. And um, you, but the thing is, so here's the here's the genesis of it. Basically, you know, I am. Um, 
I, I grew up reading science fiction of the 50s and 60s, you know, and, and uh, so I was reading Heinlein, Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, you know, Ray. Heinlein? You know, yeah, everybody, all the guys, all the guys, Robert Sheckley, you know, on and on and on. Every, every, every science fiction book published, you know, during that period, I was, I was just voraciously in, inhaling it. And, um, and I was watching Star Trek and all those great shows. And then I became aware as an adult of a show called Space Patrol. It was a live TV show that ran from 1950 to 55. And it was rerun in the 80s. It was great. And I met the star of that show and I met the head writer of that show. They're both gone now. And I just liked what they were doing. And I liked, and I, Forbidden Planet is another influence. And I just started thinking about all these things and it started percolating. And initially I was going to do something that was just primarily kind of forbidden planet, space patrol, and that sort of... This island Earth, brain yeah. aliens, any of that? Well, not that literal design, <laughs> but yeah, you know, definitely that. But then, but then as I started talking with more of my team, we started talking also about Chesley Bonestell and Willie Lay and, and that sort of vision of what the space program was going to be that you saw in the 50s and 60s, particularly the 50s. And you see it in Tomorrowland. Right, yes, very much at, so. At Disneyland, yeah. Yes, and so Doug Drexler, who, who's my effects guy who comes off Galactica and, and Next Gen and all those shows, we started talking, and then I came up with the idea of it being a big canvas. So basically, it's 200 years, you know, the, the man's expansion into, into the solar system and then out into the stars. And it's two, it's two families, the, the Kemmer family and the Sikander family as sort of our, our viewpoint people, and, and we go through several generations with them as this happens. And we, but we jump around the time frame. So the first, the first movie that I'm writing actually takes place farther along that time frame, so we're already out in the stars. But certain vignettes and some, certainly the, the other movies will be taking place at various stages. Over along, the 200-year yes, period. Yes, yes. So, it allows you to have an ensemble yes. cast. You're doing the Game of Thrones of space. Yeah, but the other part, <laughs> but the other part is uh, Robert Heinlein did something called Future History, mm-hmm. where he laid out a timeline that went many centuries, and he started writing short stories and novellas and novels set along that timeline. And we're not taking any of the specific uh, story details of what he did, but, but the idea of a big canvas is very, very interesting. As, as these two families have their alliances and their enmities and so forth, and it shifts and changes, but, but they're, they're sort of our viewpoint characters on this big, big, big story. And... Um, so that's what we're up to. And the canvas uh, takes place over 200 years. Uh-huh. Yeah. You guys are going to be shooting different pockets of it, yes. starting with, with maybe yes. one that's, that's engaging and the crux of it. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll start. The first, the first one I'm writing now, I'm writing the, I've, I've, I've written the first two-hour script. I'm almost done with it. Uh, I've outlined the second and third. I know what the fourth is going to be. That's, some of those stories are taking place farther along the timeline, so farther out. And even we, within each script, there's flashbacks, flashforwards. Yes, yes, like yes. And, but also... And what's it about? What's it about? Well, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm but so excited, Mark. Yeah, but the, so the, part, the, the fun part is, so we'll be dealing with our, our solar system as it's colonized, you know, as, as it's, as it's, as it's ex, I was going to say exploited, but, but in, in the positive way, in, in terms of, you know, asteroid mining and all this cool stuff that we read about in Heinlein and Bradbury and all that. Because, because Terraforming. But, but blah, also, blah, blah. Yes, but it's also a hopeful vision because, you know, there's been a lot of, a lot of dystopic science fiction in recent years, which I, which I love. I mean, Battlestar Galactica, Ron Moore's version, was great, except maybe for the ending. No comment. But, no comment yeah, on, that, yeah, yeah. On, on everything past New Caprica. No yeah, comment. Yeah, right. But the thing is, and it's great, and certainly it can instruct us, but it's, but it's not a hopeful vision, and it's not an empowering vision. Because we're like, okay, the future's going to be crap. You know, what do you do with it? You know, so, but, but, even, but, the, but Star Trek and even Star Wars is a hopeful vision. It's the idea that that compassion can win out, that reaching out to others and being stronger through unity can, can help. And it isn't that there isn't evil and it isn't that there isn't you know, human weakness. I mean, we're going we're gonna to go out in space and we're going to take all of our sins with us. So there will, it will, there will not be an end to war. There will not be an end to you know, all the things that are wrong with us. But Brad, you know, Bradbury's vision, Ray's vision, and, and Gene Roddenberry's vision, and, and even Serling, I mean, they, these, were, these men were not cynics and they were not pessimists. 
you know, I mean, my God, if you, if you read a book like The Martian Chronicles, we, we come very close to wiping out the Martians. We have a nuclear war on Earth, but the ending is a hopeful ending. We're looking down into the canals and seeing our own, own reflections, and we're saying, we're the Martians. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to build something. We're going to go out into space. And Ray always felt the, us, the mankind going out in space was vital, vital, vital. And I agree. I agree. And that's what this is. It's a mm-hmm. hopeful... Yes. Series, yes. expo- you know, celebrating exploration, yes, but not just externally, no, internally as well, yes. But also, it's not ch- tongue in cheek. It's not camp. That's why it's I didn't not... want to say that. Even though right. you guys are going to see this stuff, you're going to be like, oh, it's yeah. flying saucers no. and it's ray guns. It's not like at all. no, 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 no. No, it's it's if it, basically the the whole point of it is that. Um, you know, it's essentially, I'm very interested in, in generations and the ripple effect of generations of where, okay, what your grandfather did, what your father did, there's a ripple effect. For instance, the t- all the time I was growing up, I never, I never, there, was, there were no photos of my grandfather. I never met my grandfather on my dad's side because before my father was born, his father abandoned him. Mm. And so I never, I never knew my, my, and my father only met his father three times in his whole life. And, and when the Twilight Zone companion came out, because I had no idea where the Zikris came from, okay? So the Twilight Zone companion comes out, and a, dist- a distant relative sees my name on the book and contacts me and says, I have the family tree going back to the 17th century. It's like, holy cow. Wow. And so I went, and the Zikris are from Morocco. And we, we then went to Spain and Portugal, then England. This morning I was doing an interview with a, someone who's doing a podcast out of M- Manchester, England. Well, my great great-grandfather was one of the founders of the temple in Manchester. My, the, my great-great-grandfather's name, who was Masad Zikri, is in the masonry of that, of that temple. That's incredible. Yeah. And so, and so ultimately I found out, and I finally, when I met with that distant relative, there was a box of photos, and I saw this photo from the turn of the century, and it was a group photo, and in the back, looking out from the back was a teenage boy who had my face, and that was my, <gasps> grand, that was my grandfather. That was my grandfather. Oh, my goodness. His name was Ernest, Ernest Zikri. And he is, when he grew up, because it was a family scandal that brought him to America, he huh. grew up and he had two careers. He was a professional chef and a professional criminal. And, and one thing he said to one of the relatives is he, did, he said, I've done many things in my life that I'm not proud of, but never under the name Zikri. <laughs> wow. So, so the ripple effect of who your grandfather was, who your father was, who you are, and deciding who you are based on living in the shadow of those people in the first movie that I'm writing of Space Command, that's a very strong element uh, because we have our hero. His grandfather was a, was a big hero of the Space Command. And then we have our female lead whose you know, pa- father and grandfather are much darker characters. Questionable. Yes. And she's, and she's coming to help us and, and to help our hero. There's a bit of redemption and there. She's, yes. And so it's the issue of following in the tradition of your family or living, you know, living up to a different tradition or, or trying to escape. You, you can never be... You are always in reaction to who your family are. In, with the canvas that you're painting, yes. the ripple effects we're going to see in this first yes, two hour will be so. seen in the future episodes yes. that span other generations. Yes, yes. and yes. And, but we'll also go back to the earlier years of space ex- exploration. So, so some of our technology at some points will not be star going, and then later they will. So, so, so th- th- some of it might take place in the here and now? No, we won't go back that far, but in the near future. Near, mm-hmm. f- closer. closer. Okay. But, it, but it will be, it will almost be as if the space program that we envisioned in the 50s actually came to, came to pass. Okay. okay? And, but we're not going to be slavish to the 50s. It's just we're looking back at, for instance... It's a more hopeful time. I mean, there well, were kids running around wanting to be spacemen. Yeah, we yes. don't have that anymore. Yes. Well, also, if you, look, if you go out and go to like any, like the Grove or any of the malls around here, and you just look at people, you'll see people dressed like the 1930s. You'll see people dressed like the 1950s. You'll see people dressed, you know, like hippie guys from the 60s and 70s. It's a big... Interesting um, design mishmash, you know, because because we're all influenced by those design elements, and so we're looking back to the 50s. But some of our designs will, will also be very modern as well. So it's not going to be 
funky or, or hokey. That's not our dream Would at all. Would there be action in the show? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Tons of action. People getting shot with ray guns you or something like that? There's going to be ray guns, there's going to be androids, there's going to be aliens, there's going to be robots, every, everything we love. We should run a contest to see if some of our viewers want to get atomized. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell, well, actually... You we, can atomize me. If we, I keep interrupting you, just atomize we me. We have a standing offer to, to, to our friends in the press that anyone who wants to come while we're shooting and get killed on, on, on camera, we can arrange that. I'm taking it up. Yeah, I absolutely. Mean, I'm already here in L.A. Absolutely. And the other thing I should mention is we're having a talent search for two of our lead, hmm. lead roles. And this is really fun, too. Because although Armin Shimmerman and Ethan Phillips and all these actors are going to be playing roles that I'm writing for them, Doug Jones, <clears throat> um, the two leads, two of our leads, we have a character named um, Matt Kemmer. And by the way, the Kemmer is a, is a tip of my hat to Ed Kemmer, who starred in Space Patrol, whom, whom I met, who had been a, a World War II hero, and then played Commander Buzz Corey on, on Space Patrol. But so Matt Kemmer, who's the, who's the captain of the Paladin, which is our, our main ship, uh, we're going to be, ha- basically anyone, anyone can go onto our website they can go to spacecommandmovie.com. They can go. They can pull down scenes for, from Space Command. Shoot those scenes. These sides. Yeah. yeah, sides. They can shoot them as audition scenes. They don't have to have sets or props or any of that. They just shoot this. Shoot them as an, as an audition. They can then post them on YouTube. Well, not only we, the creative team, but the backers, the ones who are actually investing in Space Command, will watch all those videos, vote on them. We're going to narrow it down to five. And then the other role is a character named Cadet Bradbury that I actually named way before Ray's passing. And we actually announced it the day before Ray's pa- uh, death was announced. I remember getting the press yeah, that you and, guys were looking for those two actors. Cadet Bra- Bradbury is the youngest member of the team, like 18 to 22, very brash, very smart, kind of, you know, and uh, that can be a male or a female. But the first one's a male. Yes. Between what ages? Uh, 25 to 35. Yeah. And, and then and Cadet Bradbury's like 18 to 22 can be male, can be female. And these are heroic characters. Yes. These are yes. heroic space characters. Yes. yes. It's very fun. And they're, they're not squeaky clean. They're not going to be... You know, the whole point is to write it realistically, but not where... It's, it's, it's not so dark that it... I mean, see, I, it's funny. I was interviewed the other day, and I was saying something which is very amusing to me, which is you have all these writers writing this, this topic stuff, this, this future yeah, noir yeah, yeah. stuff, with like where life is terrible and nothing works out, and no matter how heroic you are, you get squashed. And I think ter- we're and you, done with that. You get, but the funny part is... What are, their li- what are these writers' lives like? Oh, they're millionaires living in Beverly Hills and Pacific Palisades, and they have loving families, and they, 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 they drive in nice cars, and, every, and they eat but in fine restaurants. But they're writing this They're writing this dark. So it's not that it's hypocritical, but it's ironic, certainly. And I think, and I think like my life, in my own life, love has been a very healing pa- power. I believe in the power of love. I believe in the power of compassion very strongly. And I, I, and I believe very much that people... No matter what. I mean, for God's sake, there's been a documentary made about the roundtable that I run, this industry roundtable. And one of the main characters in that, in that documentary is a writer, director, producer, actor that was a very dear friend of mine named Jim Trosh. He's a quadriplegic. Wow. And he recently died, very sadly. But he had this amazing creative life. He was a regular on Highway to Heaven, amazingly. Amazing man. And, and he was this cheerful, optimistic person. And, and he was a quadriplegic, for God's sake. And so it's not about that there aren't challenges in, in this life, that there aren't dangers, that there aren't terrible things that happen. My God. I just, I just learned that another friend of mine just died of a brain tumor, for God's sake, and he just sold a trilogy of novels. You know, so, wow. you know, it's like terrible things happen. Yes, we all die. Yes, it's a, it's a terrible thing. It's sad. But, but life can also be wonderful. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And, uh, and if you're not writing that, you're, you're not being truthful. Not being truthful. Right. You're only looking at the... The dark side. And, and, yeah. you're, and you're robbing people of hope. And I think a great requirement of a creative soul is to give people hope and give people possibility to know that there that there's room for them at the table you know because there is wow <laughs> well well mark the movie space command the space command movie.com yes space command movie.com and kids can still donate 
Yes, you, Geekscape you, you, has yes. still done it. Yes, and the more money we get in, the better we can do our job, the better we can build sets, make costumes, the whole nine yards, bring more people aboard, get the movies done sooner. So we hit 75 after three days, 75,000. Now we're up to 150. We've got another month to go. If we can crack half a million or a million, like Amanda Palmer just did with Neil, Neil Gaiman's wife for her musical endeavors, that would be great. Yeah. And, uh, and also if people you know, are, are special effects guys or, or whatever, you know, if they want to reach out to us, we're keeping a list. We're, we're going to have a big team. And, and our, our, the, we also have a website called PledgeSpaceCommand.com, which has a lot more information and videos. But if you go to SpaceCommandMovie.com, you can click through to that. And so. these kids want to audition. <clears throat> If they want to audition, there's a video on the talent search, and they can pull down the sides, and they can go for it. And we're also, I think, going to also introduce another role called Other. So if someone's not right for, Ed, for, for Matt Kemmer or for Cadet Bradbury, any, anything else, we'll give them some scenes, and they can audition too. I'm, I'm going to make my brother audition. Yeah. He's a pro wrestler. He was cool. in the WWE for years. That's great. He has a big wrestling following. That's swell. Like, he was on TV every week. Yeah. Doing this, he's got, I've got action figures in my office oh, I can fun. show you. Like, the kids in video games, all this stuff. That's great. Good-looking guy, completely athletic. That's excellent. 31 years old. There you go. I'm going to make him audition. That sounds like a lot of fun. And then the only other thing I, I can say about this is just the more we reach out, the more we spread the word, the more people know about us, the better. So I, I welcome everyone to just bang the drum as loud as they can because we, we love what we're doing and, and we have a strong um, you know, sense of responsibility to really create something wonderful. Guys, again, the project's called Space Command. You can find all the information you want at spacecommandmovie.com. Uh, Mark's been awesome, don't you think? Like, I think you guys should be giving us feedback. Are you on Twitter or any of that stuff? Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter, um, Mark Zickery, and I'm also on Facebook, Mark Zickery, and, uh, and there's markzickery.com, so there's lots of ways to find me. And, and you can read that Madman yeah. script. And, even, and, and the classes, we mentor people long distance and, and, and in L.A., so supermentors.com, you can click through on my site for that. So, yeah, and, and anyway, I can be of help to anyone, I'm happy to. Guys. What an amazingly positive episode. <laughs> um, of course, I'm at Jonathan London on Twitter, and geekscape.net is where we hang our hats. You can find articles, podcasts, uh, contests, basically forums, anything we, we're involved with. This is our, our month-long road to Comic-Con. Comic-Con isn't exactly a month, and we're going to have a booth again. I, I will tell you guys the booth number soon. I, I know the booth number, but I don't have it on hand. Uh, and we welcome all our friends. I talked to Doug Jones yesterday about signing at our booth uh, over the weekend. I, of course, am welcoming the entire uh, Space Command core to come and be a part of our Comic-Con experience, and you guys as well. I'm, uh, I know that we've gone audio, but I did talk to a company yesterday about possibility of a live feed from Comic-Con, if we can work that out technologically, so that there's no... I just don't want to give you guys a bad experience, you know what I mean? That's why we upped the quality of the, of the podcast audio-wise. I want to make sure that if we're streaming from the Comic-Con booth, you guys get an uninterrupted stream that looks great, sounds great, and... Basically, it's as if you guys are there. Otherwise, hey, uh, there's a website. There's tons of ways to interact with Geekscape. See you guys on Facebook. See you guys on Twitter. This has been Geekscape. Mark, phenomenal story. Uh, we want to keep up with it. So whether Thanks. we're writing articles about Space Command, we're having you back or some of the talent back, we're going to keep up this Space Command yeah, stuff. That'll be great. I look forward to it. And uh, you know, thanks for having me, Jonathan. It's great. When can the audience potentially see the window for release on this project? Well, we're going to be shooting. Uh, we're going to start shooting probably in September and of the first film, and then we'll we'll start rolling out all the other ones. I, I think how high we get the budget will determine how fast we can deliver right. the movies. Because you know, for instance, World Enough in Time had seven hundred effect shots. That was a year of post. But if we can bring a more compositors aboard, it's all the all the faster. Guys, help them out if you want to see this thing. All right. SpaceCommandMovie.com. This has been Geekscape. Love you guys. We'll see you next time.